This is The Tea on International Arbitration with Nicole Silver and Gaela Gering Flores. Nicole Silver and I are practitioners in the field of international arbitration, and we are both chairs of two committees of the DC Bar International Law Community. And we bring you today The Tea on International Arbitration, where we aim to give you bite-sized information regarding international arbitration topics of interest. It is my great pleasure today to introduce our guest, Arif Ali, in our first part of a two-part series on diversity and inclusion in international arbitration. Arif Ali is co-chair of Deckert's Global International Arbitration Practice. Arif is world-renowned in the field of international arbitration as a practitioner and an arbitrator and serving as lead attorney in international commercial and investor state arbitrations in a broad range of industry sectors under the procedural rules that are the alphabet soup of what we know of all of the major arbitration institutions, including ICSID, UNCITRAL, ICC, LCIA, and the ICDR. Arif is fluent in English, Urdu, Bengali, Hindi, Spanish, and French. And now I'll tell you a bit about why that might be the case. Arif was born in Bangladesh, and his family left during the civil war between East and West Pakistan. After leaving Bangladesh, Arif grew up in various countries around the world, including Libya, Brunei, Egypt, Nigeria, and Malaysia. He eventually went to boarding school in England and then came to the United States in 1982 for college and stayed. Thanks so much for being here with us today, Arif. Gaila, thank you so much. I really do appreciate the opportunity and uh, uh, feel very privileged to be speaking to you, Nicole. Thank you. Now, it's wonderful to have you here. I'm going to turn the mic over to Nicole, but before I do, I just wanted to note the particular importance of the focus of today's podcast, something we planned actually months ago, that being diversity and inclusion, or the lack thereof in international arbitration. This topic has particular importance for today, the 21st of September, 2020, as the news of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing and the Trump administration's fervor to nominate her replacement just weeks before the presidential election hit us just a couple of days ago. So not to put too much pressure on our guest today, but this is the world in which we are living now. Uh, Nicole? Would you like to go ahead with our first question for Arif? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you again, Arif, for joining us. Um, so Arif, I was just wondering if there might be one memory or experience that you could share that really stays with you from your younger years, whether in law school or in your early years at a law firm or even further back, that informs or shapes your efforts to maintain a diverse and inclusive team or workplace? You know, Nicole, the, um, I think it'd be very difficult to identify one particular instance uh, or experience. I think that uh, in my trajectory in the world of international arbitration has been one of really, I think, being uh, unique uh, as a person uh, within that community. And that, of course, has uh, had uh, some positives, but it's also, there have been many challenges. I think if I go back into my own personal history, 
a lot has had to do with um, uh, feeling excluded, uh, growing up in communities where one didn't quite uh, fit in or belong. I think that uh, the Civil War, which I remember I was seven years old, was, uh, was something that had a very big impact on me, given that we were Urdu-speaking Bengalis in East Pakistan, and so therefore were targeted by the West Pakistanis, as well as by the, uh, uh, by the freedom fighters in East Pakistan. Uh, and that left me with a feeling of, well, where do we really belong? And then throughout wherever, wherever it is that we lived, I was always pretty much the, uh, the sole brown boy uh, within a community that also made me feel uh, very different. And I think that what drives me in terms of my, my career and uh, the choices that I've made, as well as the teams that uh, I've tried to recruit, has been to provide those who have different perspectives, different backgrounds, different histories together, because I think that ultimately leads to a far better representation of a client, uh, as well as the ability to connect with people in a more meaningful way, which I also think is, is extremely important. I mean, if there's one particular instance, I think it was when I was a summer associate at a firm down in Florida. This was my first year as a summer associate. And uh, at, the, uh, at the end of the summer, the hiring partner asked me, well, you know, which area of law do you really want to focus on? And I said, well, I'd love to, I want to be a litigator. Uh, I, want to, uh, I want to advocate. And, uh, and he told me that, look, with your name, your accent, your background, you're not going to resonate with, with juries. Uh, and so you really do need to think about perhaps going into international tax or project finance or something of that nature. And in fact, it, you know, it, was, it, was, it was very meaningful advice. You know, at, at the, you know, after I, I processed what was, what was said, it struck me that what he was really saying is that you need to identify an area of practice that reflects your background, uh, that reflects your, you know, your human experience and that people need to use their natural advantages that, are, that they're born with and that they develop uh, over the course of their life to, uh, to their professional objectives and, and, and goals. And so, you know, at, at one level, it was, uh, it was disappointing. But on another level, I think it was very sage advice. Thank you. Thank you for that anecdote. RFI, I can understand why on the one hand it would it, you know, you would find it to be sage advice that you really need to use your background in your practice and find a practice that really kind of fits who you are and, and how you were molded. I guess the one, the, one, the one thing that kind of comes out into my mind is, well, you know, women certainly, and, and certainly women of color, um, different people of color have faced similar advice frequently all the time, maybe for eons. I don't know. Um, just, uh, you know, I'm sure this first women entering, you know, wanting to be litigators, I'm quite certain they faced people telling them like, Ooh, maybe that's not the right place for you because you're not going to resonate with juries. Like juries aren't going to want to hear from women or juries aren't going to want to hear from people of color or 
if you were in the same position as that partner in Miami who gave you advice um, and were facing someone, you know, a, a lawyer of color or, or a woman in an area where you, I mean, that might be true. It might be true that juries, that, that someone like that wouldn't resonate with juries. But what do you, what do you think you would say? Well, first of all, I think I would have presented the, the point from the standpoint of that, uh, that hiring partner somewhat differently uh, in terms of focusing on the constructive rather than what was perhaps a, a, different, uh, a different perspective from which the advice was being, being given. I think that for, for lawyers of, uh, of color, um, you know, today, as opposed to now, you know, 30 plus years ago, I mean, this country has changed a lot in terms of its uh, demographic and in terms of the sensitivities to inclusiveness. I mean, there's a long, long way to go, but things have definitely changed. I mean, I see far more people of color there, you know, of course the law school statistics show how many women are going into law school. I see many more uh, people of color entering international practice in different uh, areas. So things are very uh, different. I think that it's, it's the recognition of the, the demographic changes that are taking place and are inevitable that lawyers of color need to, to view as, as an opportunity because they ultimately will, uh, the, the juries, the, the, the judges, the decision makers, the regulators are also beginning to reflect those demographic changes. And I think the hardest thing about being a diverse person is to feel an immense weight of, or, or an immense force that is working uh, against you and to feel a, that there are uh, glass walls and there are glass ceilings and sometimes just, those are just, uh, those are concrete, uh, concrete walls and, and ceilings. But I think that that, you know, one has to view each wall and each part of that ceiling as, you know, containing skylights and windows. And through those skylights and windows, those are going to become, you know, massive doors if one keeps pushing and understanding that people of color are more and more relevant to the legal profession and bring a particular perspective that actually will lead to a greater legitimization of uh, the, the practice of law, of the making of laws and the implementation of law. So, you know, I think that it, it, it's very easy to, uh, to feel discouraged. And believe me, I have uh, very often felt uh, discouraged, but I think at the same time, uh, one needs to take a broader perspective beyond the individual conversation or the individual bar to look at what's happening and say that there is a, you know, I'm needed. You know, it's not as that I'm not, I am needed even more and more. And there's a need that needs to be fulfilled. And I, as an individual person of color, need to step up and fulfill that need. Thanks, Arif. I'll, I'll pass the mic back to Nicole. <laughs> well, I, thank you. Um, and in a way, you've answered this question a little bit already with what you just said, but how, how do you think 
maybe more concretely, that having a diverse team makes your team better or a better advocate for your client? And can you think of a time that best illustrates this? Uh, good question. Um, I think that in it, it almost to me is, is self-evident, particularly in our, in our practice area. Um, I mean, what we bring to the table by having teams that are multi-ethnic, multi-racial, uh, that reflect uh, different gender preferences, uh, different sexual preferences, you know, teams that are multilingual, uh, is perspective. And in, in, you know, I think that we don't tend to appreciate the degree to which that perspective provides a particular and very, very unique set of insights. Uh, at one level, it allows you to, allows, I think, the teams that, that, that I've been fortunate to work with to connect with clients. Uh, it, allows, it allows you to see things uh, and perceive everything from personal traits, language usage, uh, body language, in terms of appreciating what it is that a witness is saying, what it is that uh, was maybe in the dynamic that led to a particular dispute. And that can't be underestimated. Everybody brings their own personal history, background, culture, and insight to, to the table. And I think that in the type of environment in which we're working, which is a global environment with a global client base and in which we are contributing to, to the, the international legal system, it's important to bring those perspectives together. I think that if you have a team of, and again, I don't want to say this pejoratively, but of all uh, white men, they're not going to necessarily see the types of issues that can lead you to being a better advocate overall as let's say the grouping of uh, the three of us in terms of what we would see, in terms of what we would hear, in terms of the way we would frame the issues based on what it is that we see uh, and hear, how we read the law and how we present uh, a case. So, I mean, I think that that should be uh, that's a very powerful statement as to why diversity is incredibly important within the context of, uh, of, of advocacy, not just as a, as a moral principle, but as something that is, uh, that is reflected in uh, hard dollar client service. And if I had one example, I take, I take the example of uh, when I worked with, uh, you know, at the UN Compensation Commission, uh, in Geneva. This was a commission that was established to deal with the claims uh, arising out of the 1990 invasion of, uh, of Kuwait. Now, I was one of the first people to, to join the commission. There were like four or five of us at the time. And I remember that you know, there were some two million claims that had to be addressed within a very short period of time. And I arrived in, in, in Geneva, you know, as 28-year-old lawyer, excited about being part of a war claims commission uh, and international law and uh, what have you, uh, and very soon got extremely discouraged because I thought the whole thing was just completely unmanageable, unachievable, and just chaos. But, you know, two million claims layered within uh, the context of UN bureaucracy. 
was something that I just thought was overwhelming. And I went to the uh, I went to the Secretary General of the Commission. I told him that I was I was resigning, and I explained to him why. And he uh, uh, said, "Come on, let's go for a, let's go for a walk." And under, underneath the Palais de Nation, there's a uh, there's a long, long corridor. And he walked me down this corridor, and we went into you know different rooms. There's a room where people were boxing up books, and then we went to the copy center, and then we went to one of the meeting rooms where various delegates were uh, were speaking, and then we went to uh, the uh, this beautiful coffee lounge, uh, and we sat there, and he asked me, uh, well, you know, what did you see? And what, what do you see around you? And I said, you know, not really quite sure. I saw lots of people. And he said, well, lots of people from where? And there were people, there were, there were Swiss, and there were French, and there were Bangladeshis, and Pakistanis, and there were Indians, and there were people from all over Sub-Saharan Africa, and the Maghreb, and from Latin America. And he said that, you know, what we achieve is the mere fact that all of these people have come together in common purpose, whether they're in the copy room or they're boxing up books or they are, they're debating a particular issue of, uh, of human rights or they are uh, developing a claims commission that is going to set precedence as to how you deal with mass movements of people and how you deal with uh, uh, international responsibility. And the fact is that every single person brings a different working methodology. Every single person brings a, you know, a, a, a different perspective. And through that, we achieve a certain legitimization of what it is that we are uh, setting about doing. And so you know, that had a very, very powerful impact on me in terms of what it is that we were going to do at the UN Compensation Commission, which was bringing together different perspectives, legal training, uh, political perspectives, you know, sociological, economic ideas to a common purpose, which was to resolve these claims. It may have been more inefficient, but ultimately I think led to a process that was far more uh, legitimate from the perspectives of the claimants and ultimately from the perspectives, I believe, even of the Iraqis. Thank you, Araf. I think the, this next question, and I, I'm probably known for this, <laughs> enters into somewhat thornier issues and, and has subparts. Um, but I wanted to start with, um, what do you think the next steps should be for the community, the international arbitration community, to help elevate or create a more diverse group of practitioners and arbitrators in international arbitration. And, and of course, every time I, I mention diverse or diversity, I, I'm kind of instinctively including inclusion in that as well. Um, so essentially the, the question, the, the main question is, what do you think next steps are to make or to further diversity and inclusion in international arbitration? Gila, I think that the I think you know there's a starting point, which is to appreciate the degree to which diversity and inclusion are now very much part of the agenda. I mean, they're they're part of the agenda within the uh, let's say the, the the trade associations or the professional bodies such as the IBA or ICA, the ABA, and various other you know, bodies that we are that we all participate in. 
Uh, it's very much part of the agendas and objectives of the arbitral uh, institutions. And it's due to you know, amazing work that, uh, that people have been doing to make sure that diversity and inclusion is not something that we shy away from in terms of, of discussing the issues openly, transparently, sometimes in a manner that's very raw. Uh, but that then leads to a, uh, uh, I think, to, to, to progress. So, you know, we have to be, I think we have to start off by saying that we, you know, we are at a place in, in, at a point in time where we can continue to evolve in very positive ways and, and you know, understand that the road is long, but we're, we're on it. Uh, so that's, that's, you know, that's for starters. Number two, I think that it's, I think that, the, the, that there's a degree of education that needs to take place that goes uh, beyond just the question of morality. I think that we, are, we have begun to appreciate the moral imperative behind diversity and inclusion, but I think that we're a long way away from educating the community, and that means the global community, in ways that are informed by uh, psychology, that are informed by economics, that are informed by uh, sociology. And so there is that element of, I think, a broader educational exercise. I think that the, from the standpoint of, of arbitrators and arbitral appointments, I think that there's some, you know, there's some great initiatives uh, underway. We now have, uh, I think, an incredible list of uh, arbitrators of uh, African descent uh, that has been you know, put together. And if one just simply takes the time to look at that list and the credentials that are reflected by the individuals on that list, I mean, it really is quite incredible. So I think that it's time for the arbitral institutions to really step up and to uh, make diversity uh, an absolute priority and not shy away from it. I don't think that they've done enough in terms of uh, ensuring that their committees are diverse, that the committee leaderships are, are diverse, that, that appointments uh, have diversity, not just as an imperative, but as a priority. That you know, amongst the list, list of six, if you have uh, three that are diverse and three that are non-diverse, the three that are diverse are numbers one, two, and three in terms of, uh, of, of those appointments. And, and you know, why is that impo uh, important? Because you know, what are we doing? We are, we are uh, through, the, through our participation in commercial arbitrations, uh, we are facilitating a legal framework that facilitates trade and commerce. In the context of investment arbitration, we are you know, helping to build a, uh, an infrastructure in which foreign investment can be uh, more predictable, that the flows of foreign investment can, be, uh, can, can, can take place in a, a, with, with risks being mitigated. And in order to do that, we need to make sure that those systems uh, have a certain legitimacy to them. And you can only legitimize institutions that are intended to serve a global community by uh, having the, the people who are part of it participate. I mean, it's like democracy. You can't have democracy only for a certain group of people when society is much broader. I mean, our democracy 
prior to the Voting Rights Act was not a legitimate democracy. And as we've moved into a, a you know, greater participation in democratic institutions, those institutions themselves become more legitimate. So, you know, I think it's, I think it's for those who are the users of, the, of this system, of these systems, they need to understand that they will crumble on themselves, they will implode if they don't actually build up through participation of, from a broader perspective of stakeholders. And that's across every metric of diversity and inclusion. And I guess just to follow up on, you know, perhaps something that's particularly US-centric, something that's been a part of the discussion of racial justice in the United States, at least for the past, I don't know, several months since the Black Lives Matter movement um, really kind of exploded um, with the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And I guess, how do you deal with at least what, what I've seen as, as sometimes the, the generally jaundiced or cynical or insanely slow response to diversity and inclusion efforts in international arbitration? And in other words, how do you address people in international arbitration who, in response to efforts to increase diversity in the field, say some form of all lives matter? Well, I mean, I think that you have to accept that in a sense that, uh, I mean, when you look at it on a global perspective, and ours is a unique practice area because these are, we are working globally. And so I think that, you know, from that perspective, all lives uh, do matter. And I think that we can't shy away from that because, again, if we, if we are, you know, once you, once you go beyond jurisdictional boundaries to talk about uh, diversity, um, it takes on a completely different dimension, right? I mean, if the three of us were living in China, right, who's diverse, right? If the three of us were in Nigeria, who's diverse? So, you know, I think that when we have this discussion about diversity and inclusion in, in, in the United States, I mean, that, in and of, that, that I think is where that discussion, you know, for us needs to take on the focus of, of what, what diversity means within the, the US environment and not try to, to, to export or transport uh, our particular challenges with diversity and inclusion to a broader global environment. I think the way it translates is by virtue of showing leadership, by virtue of showing progress, and that in and of itself then leads to uh, a different discussion that will take place on diversity and inclusion, let's say in Egypt, right? In Egypt, it's probably the biggest issue on diversity and inclusion will be gender diversity in terms of participation. I mean, that's not to say that that doesn't exist uh, and isn't an imperative elsewhere, but it's something that we need to appreciate that the diversity and inclusion discussions in different uh, geographies and communities are different. So, you know, here in, here in the United States, I think that it's a, it's a, it's a well-informed discussion that's been taking place. I mean, of course, it's going, you know, progress is, 
is, is slower, but I think that the, the overall momentum is, uh, is increasing. Uh, and I think that there is a you know, continuing push to, uh, to ensure that there is diversity in terms of people who are entering law schools, people who are coming uh, in terms of hiring at law firms, in terms of promotion at law firms. It's not good enough. I think often it's extremely hypocritical. Um, there's a lot of tokenism uh, that, uh, that we have to, you know, to contend with. There's a lot of, I think, very patronizing uh, discussions that take place around uh, issues of diversity. But nonetheless, those discussions are taking place. But I think that the arbitral bodies need to be far more courageous. And I think that that's where we are, where, where I, I think for some reason they have not yet had that courage to truly appreciate that they need to work harder, right? They need to work much, much harder to find the qualified diverse candidates to serve on arbitral tribunals. Uh, in the same way that we who are involved in hiring need to work much harder to demonstrate to diverse lawyers that international practice, international arbitration, litigation is something that you know, it should be meaningful to them. Uh, that can be an exciting career in which they can be very successful. And I think that we don't know how to have those conversations. I mean, I would challenge anybody that's listening to this or the three of us to, to lay out how we would have the conversation about international arbitral practice with, a, uh, with an African-American student who is a first-generation college uh, student and was a first-generation law school attendee as to why it is that international arbitration is a meaningful practice uh, area for, for, for that individual as opposed to working in other areas that may be more meaningful for that individual from, from the standpoint of, of his or her community and his or her career aspirations. And so we have to get that granular in terms of teaching ourselves and then implementing what it is that we have learned. And we have to make sure that we are pressing the arbitral institutions to dig deep and search wide and engage proactively in meeting with the arbitrators who are diverse, interviewing them, promoting them, and ensuring that there are fora in which they can interact with non-diverse lawyers in a way that creates confidence, right? People get appointed as arbitrators because individuals have gotten to know them through the various conferences that we all go to and that you have personal experience and you build trust and confidence. But if you have, uh, if you have fora that are not going to be uh, that are not diverse and which you are not bringing in the, the, you know, the diverse lawyers, how are you going to build that trust and confidence? And so that places an imperative on the organizing institutions to ensure that they have, again, as I said, that they have dug deeper and they have uh, searched more widely to try and ensure that people are being brought into the conversation. Thank you to our guest, Arif Ali, and thank you to the DC Bar. This is the end of part one of a two-part series. 
To check out more of what DC Bar Communities has to offer, please visit dcbar.org backslash communities. You've been listening to The Tea on International Arbitration. Watch out for new episodes, including part two to this two-part series. And if you liked this episode, please tell a friend about it and subscribe at anchor.fm dcbart or anywhere you access your podcasts. 